The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Justin Soder, and this evening I am joined as always by Father Anthony Ciccata, the Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and author of the book, Work of Human Hands. Father, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Nice to be back. Well, Father, it's been uh, June since we last did our, our show, Work of Human Hands 5, and tonight we proceed on to number 6, which covers Chapter 7 of your book, which is entitled Ready for Assembly. And, you know, Father... Uh, in preparing for this show, I think perhaps the most obvious change which stares the faithful in the face each time they walk into their local Novus Ordo temple is, is this cold and bland, sterile architecture of the sanctuary. And you know, I was thinking to myself, if you want an honest assessment of what this really looks like, it's almost like you know, like a like a free Masonic temple. But um, or like an say, airport sometimes. So absolutely, yeah. But you know, you say in this chapter that quote. Material items connected with worship convey a message about what occurs spiritually, unquote. So let me ask you to start this off with, why are elements of art and architecture and furnishings so essential in the liturgy, and why has its destruction done so much damage to the faithful? Well, we're creatures of body and soul, and the Catholic religion is sometimes referred to uh, as an incarnational religion. Uh, That is to say that the Church uses... Uh, material objects, um, material items, in in order to draw our gaze to spiritual realities and to spiritual things. So the uh, environment, as it were, uh, for the Mass, tells us uh, about uh, the great spiritual realities behind the Mass itself, be it the building, uh, the general sanctuary area, the appearance of the altar, the art on the walls, uh, the whole disposition uh, of the church, the vestments, the priest wears, and so on. Uh, All of these send uh, a message, telegraph a message, about the great spiritual realities that are connected with the Mass. So, therefore, all of this is something which is uh, very important. Mm. Well, before we dive into the whole meat of the episode, um, let's have a small conversation on on some of the recent attempts that we have seen to, 
you know, spruce up, if you will, the Novus Ordo to, you know, try to dress it up, you know, a little bit of lipstick and mascara. You know, we've seen in recent years, particularly with Benedict's penchant for, you know, dragging out the old beautiful Baroque fiddleback chasubles and the jeweled chalices, you know, we see this attempt to cover over the new rite with these beautiful liturgical items of the past. What effect does this have on the faithful, and does it serve like an anesthetic from the obvious nature of the assembly structure, which we're going to be talking about this evening? Well, I mean, the answer to the short answer to the question is is yes. In fact, as we shall see, that the new order of the mass and the legislation surrounding it really um, was not uh, designed with these sort of old-fashioned externals in mind. You can uh, there's no law specifically. Uh, prohibiting uh, their use. Nevertheless, the whole whole spirit of the new liturgy is, is against the old uh, aesthetic. So, what you saw with Benedict the Sixteenth, who was a very uh, cultured and a very refined man, was this desire to uh, transpose some of these old externals on the new rite to give it an a, a, appearance of, of uh, continuity with tradition. And it, it's, um, he speaks in his uh, writings in the 1990s, his writings about the sacred liturgy, about the, uh, uh, the importance of maintaining a certain traditional aesthetic. But... Mm. Uh, Ultimately, all of this stuff is is alien to the spirit of the new rite. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the program. So to start this off, Father, we're going to go into the first section of your uh, of your chapter, chapter 7, where it's entitled uh, The Image of the Gathered Assembly. Now, we've given our, our listeners a lot of names so far in, in, in all of our shows of the cast of characters involved in these, these destructive changes, and we're going to add one more to that list, and that's a Father Alessandro Pistoia who was a Roman liturgist and, of course, a Benini Powell, and his vision for the quote-unquote liturgical environment and promoting a, quote, celebration in which the assembly actively participates. Can you talk about this, Father? Yes. Uh, Pistoia, as you mentioned, was one of uh, Bugnini's helpers in uh, Concilium. And uh, in one of the articles in Bugnini's magazine, Notizia, he uh, outlined when the new mass came out the rationale behind the changes in the uh, material requisites that were used for Mass, and indeed in the whole liturgical environment. Pistoia mm-hmm. located the, the central idea uh, behind the new liturgical aesthetic in uh, Article 7 of the General Instruction of the Roman Missal. Now, we've talked about that uh, before. This was the uh, infamous definition of the Mass as an assembly. So, uh, Pistoia said that uh, all of the, um, uh, the, the whole understanding of the new liturgical environment has to reflect the image of the gathered assembly. Uh, whereas before, the uh, different uh, items that were used in the liturgical environment had this this uh, idea of the exaltation of God and of the saints and so on. Uh, now uh, the emphasis uh, emphasis had to shift 
to the gathered assembly, to the people who were the church, and uh, to their action. So you go from something that is um, uh, an aesthetic and understanding of the liturgical environment as uh, uh, vertical and centered on God to something that is uh, horizontal and that's centered on man. Mm-hmm. There's an, there's an interesting quote in this chapter here from uh, from this Pistoia and uh, this this Father Pistoia and uh, he says uh, quote the structure and environment for the new mass must begin once again to speak to the faith of the people of God. Now I read that and I thought people of God. Now that's an interesting name because did, I'm pretty sure they used to be called the faithful. And then I thought to myself, well, apparently they're either too stupid or too, or too far sophisticated to appreciate or gain benefit from the old Catholic structure and environment. I mean, this really was sort of a supplanting of those old terms and that, and that, that old understanding, was it not? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. The, the term people of God is a Vatican II term. The um, uh, idea behind adopting the word people of God rather than uh, the church is uh, that the people of God is somehow broader than the Catholic Church. So this is in, um, an ecumenical, also an ecumenical buzzword. In fact, you find that theology reflected in not only Vatican II and subsequent documents, but also in JP II's 1983 uh, Code of Canon Law, that you start uh, out with this, this uh, idea of everyone who is baptized, uh, implicitly including heretics and schismatics are part of the people of God. And then you proceed from that to um, the church. So <clears throat> that's, um, uh, that idea and that theology is uh, one that uh, imbued the, uh, the creation of the new mass. Uh, the other point I would make with regards to the use of that particular term is uh, a few shows ago, we talked about uh, Louis Bouillet and about his uh, uh, influence on the modernist wing of the liturgical movement. His, his understanding of the liturgy was based on the Jewish notion of assembly and the idea of the convocation of the people of God. So the, the use of this uh, particular modernist buzzword in the uh, commentaries uh, on the new liturgy by the authors of the new mass is something that's, that's very significant. They're, they're uh, uh, pointing, uh, they're calling our attention to something that was uh, really very much a part of the liturgy. I would, uh, of their modernist understanding of the liturgy, I would also point out that the expression uh, people of God is now used quite a bit by uh, Bergoglio, by uh, by Francis. That this this pops up time and time again in his particular discourses because he is really a man of, of Vatican too. I want to take our listeners back for just a second, Father. We, we talked in previous programs about uh, this is one of the points you hammered home early in the book about the corrosive effects of deregulation as it came to everything, the liturgy, and now we now we point our attention to sacred furnishings. Um, tell us a little bit about what Vatican II Sacrosanctum Concilium said about um, you know, the bishop's power to control and regulate sacred furnishings, if you would. Well. Um, <sighs> 
there was a, uh, as it were, decentralization and deregulation. And the um, uh, a great part of the authority that had been uh, hitherto um, uh, exercised by uh, the Vatican, uh, by, by the Roman congregations, was devolved to the local bishops' conferences. So uh, the... Um, the idea was that uh, at the local level, uh, you know, uh, the the bishop or the priest at the local level knows what's what will better speak to the so-called faith of the people of God. And this is a, a, a reflection, uh, please note, and a continuation of something else we talked about earlier. Joseph Jungmann's um, uh, second major idea. Uh, of pastoral liturgy, that the liturgy has to be adapted to um, suit the needs of the congregation, the individual congregation in front of you. So this is the turning the idea of, of the liturgy on its head instead of elevating people, educating them about the sacred liturgy and, and drawing them uh, drawing them upwards, that you go for the lowest common denominator and you see what the people want. So this is one of the, the uh, effects. So your central deregulation uh, is, is gone. Uh, the... Uh, a great deal of the authority then is is left uh, in the hands of the bishops' conferences, who uh, then in turn legislate actually very little, and uh, allow uh, pretty uh, any priest pretty much to uh, dispose churches, dis- uh, uh, arrange the disposition of churches and what you put in them uh, according to what he thinks his people will like. Mm-hmm. So that's that's it's it's a very short. Uh, journey from from that to um, uh, you know the different um, uh, uh, strange uh, liturgical creations that um, uh, we've seen in one church after another since Vatican II. Yeah, and, and you begin to see, you know, Father, the language that came from the bishops' conference with this newfound authority uh, when they they made such decrees like uh, that. Quote, Christians must respect the primacy of the living assembly. You know, now, the assembly is living. I mean, you would think since the assembly is made up of people, they would be alive. Uh, but, of course, <laughs> if you visited an Ovis Ordo, you, you may have question and doubt about that. But anyway, I guess my question would be, um, you know, how are these words and this phraseology, you know, the living assembly and all this, that, and the other, how is that the mechanism of action for creating an anything-goes mentality, which obviously has been the logical result for what we see today in local Novus Ordo temples. Like, you know, we see banners and posters and TV screens with bouncing balls and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, it, it, it makes it clear that what we're going for is the consumer liturgy, the, the lower, lowest common denominator. So um, you... Um, uh, if the living assembly is uh, the key principle, then everything in the church has to um, uh, bow to that, as it were. Uh, so you have to uh, 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 simplify and uh, popularize and proletarianize uh, whatever you have uh, in the church. And this is the, you establish this as a general principle. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's, let's change our focus a bit here to something that I'm sure almost everyone is familiar with, and that is the idea of mass being said facing the people. Now, this, of course, you know, in my experience, this is probably the most heralded aspect of the new mass that I've heard its supporters talk about throughout the years. And they'll always say that it's wonderful that the priest is facing the people and they feel so connected with the priest because he's not only speaking their language, but he's talking to them, he's facing them. Now, this speaks of the subconscious destruction that this action has had, Father, uh, particularly in the minds of the faithful. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, the assembly. Uh, because it shows that they have the central essence of the sacrificial nature of the Mass itself totally taken from their mind. Uh, so, to which I suppose we could say that you know, the Reformers, they've, you know, that they've accomplished what they set out to do. Uh, this change, like several of the other Bunini changes and gutting of the Catholic theology of the Mass, was kind of cloaked in this ideology that we're returning to the early Church. And we spoke about this in earlier episodes, or as they like to say, the primitive Church, which we'll talk about later on in just a moment. But Father, it seems to me that few people really know exactly when this change occurred and what the process was to make that happen. Could you go into that? Yes. Uh, um, the notion of, of uh, mass facing the people and, and how it got to where it did in uh, uh, Vatican II uh, was basically this, that uh, in the left of the liturgical movement in the 1920s and 1930s, 1940s and the 1950s, uh, there was this idea that uh, for people truly to participate in the Mass, they had to see uh, everything that was going on. So the priest had to face them. I think we even uh, mentioned this before, that there's a very famous um, liturgist in the uh, in a, a monastery in the suburbs of, of Vienna. Uh, his name was Pius Parsh, and he had a chapel uh, constructed uh, in which he indulged his different liturgical tastes there. And, and uh, among the things that, among the practices he instituted there, was mass facing the people. Uh, you see this sometimes in older books uh, written by members of the liturgical movement. There were churches that were constructed in um, Europe uh, by members of the liturgical movement, uh, and a few places even in the United States where the Mass was uh, celebrated facing the people. So this was very much a hobby horse of the liturgical movement. So when the Second Vatican Council uh, came along. This was in the air among the, the, the uh, uh, very much among the members of the left of the liturgical movement. So, the um, as the Vatican II changes were uh, being implemented, uh, this was one of the changes that that gradually was permitted and then, uh, uh, in the practical order, made mandatory. So you had this uh, instruction inter ecumenici and it talks about how the main altar should preferably be freestanding to permit walking around it and celebrate celebrating mass facing the people so you uh, make it um, uh, an option you know, something by, uh, that uh, you can uh, do by the way in which you construct the church then you have Paul VI himself talking about uh, uh, how wonderful this practice is, that, that the altar facing the people 
uh, makes for a truer and a more communal celebration. It's easier to participate if you have this. So uh, there's this um, uh, legislation permitting this and eventually uh, pressure uh, to do it. So uh, finally, in, in uh, uh, most dioceses, throughout the world, virtually all dioceses, it was decreed that the priest should turn his altar around, have mass facing the people, uh, and the priests, uh, for the most part, uh, followed these regulations. Some didn't, and uh, I know of a couple of cases where priests were actually removed because they refused to do it. So this became the new norm. Well, you know, what I found fascinating, Father, about that Paul VI quote, when he said that, that it makes participation easier, my first question was, for who? Because, you know, if the, if the faithful are sitting in the pews, how does that make it easier for them? And I think this points to something deeper, which is, yes, if you're going to invite a gaggle of people up around the table, then it probably does make it easier. Well, the, the, the idea, remember, though, in the modern understanding of liturgy, is that the only... Um, participation that is true participation is when you are saying or singing something aloud altogether. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in that sense, if you understand participation in that sense, uh, that yes, that is true. That the uh, priest president is uh, the prayer leader, cheerleader, and uh, he's going to be much more effective. Uh, leading the cheers if he is is uh, uh, facing you. You know, you don't have the Cincinnati Bengals cheerleaders uh, facing in the other direction. Rather, they're facing the assembled uh, congregation out of the stadium. So, uh, not that I've ever been to a Bengals game or seen a Bengals cheerleader, for that matter. But in any event. <laughs> Well, let's 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 kind of talk a bit about this, Father, because this is a this is a central tenet throughout the chapter here. When you you know you you take the you take the Father Chicada hammer to the uh, the fraudulent history of of this idea that uh, all of these changes. Uh, I'm, and, I'm glad you said hammer and not pom pom. <laughs> <laughs> no, no hammer, hammer indeed. Uh, all right. Now, of course, now, of course, if Bishop Sanborn was on with us, there might be some confusion there. Maybe I would have had to say pom pom after all. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, um, this this idea, and we've heard this over and again. And I think I think we sort of hinted at this in previous shows that this idea of all these changes, turning the altar around, facing the people, blah blah blah. This was all going back to the traditional aspects of the primitive church, and this was the church's primitive practice. Tell us why that's fraudulent, Father. Well, (laughs) this was repeated time and time again. I remember hearing it as as the changes were introduced. The reason it was fraudulent is that uh, what um, determined the uh, direction for uh, prayer in the primitive church was where East was. Because the Christians, uh, uh, like the Jews, uh, attached uh, an importance to uh, the symbolism of, of East in uh, their worship. The idea is, is that the sun, was, sun rises over the world, and that um, in uh, that uh, in Christian worship, the 
uh, east is the direction symbolically from which Christ will come to judge the world, that uh, Christ is the sun in the sense of the, the sun in the sky, is the sun of righteousness shining over the world, etc. So you had you, the, the, the important idea was facing east. You see this reflected in the design of, uh, of synagogues. Uh, synagogues uh, are designed to face east. Uh, and the the what's called the bima, which is where the uh, cantor stands and uh, sings the prayers. Uh, this is this is a platform in uh, the center of the synagogue, and the cantor is is facing east, is facing the eastern wall of uh, the church, which is where where the Torah is kept. So this was the design of the Palestinian synagogue, and this was. Uh, adopted, or, uh, adapted in primitive Christian churches uh, as well. Uh, the importance of, of facing east. So it was an idea of um, the uh, Christian priest um, uh, turning around and in a chummy uh, fashion, facing the congregation and dialoguing with them, and so on. The idea was that you were you were facing. God, it, you find this. This is this is confirmed by um, uh, studies of liturgical architecture. Uh, there's a, a, a very famous study done by a Jesuit named Brown, uh, who studied all of these churches in um, these uh, primitive Christian churches, uh, looking particularly at uh, this this issue of, of the orientation of the church. And you find the fathers of the church, St. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, and uh, countless others talking about uh, the importance of, of East, the symbolism of uh, the East. So this was the idea. And it, what happened is that in um, uh, churches, as they're constructed in, in uh, different parts of the world, uh, you often hear it said that, well, St. Peter's Basilica was designed in such a way that the um, uh, Pope said Mass facing the people, but that's not really correct. The idea is that he's facing east, and the altar is that way because uh, there's a tomb of a martyr in front of it. So you're <laughs> facing the tomb of the martyr. Mm-hmm. So all of these, the, the uh, modernist idea that uh, Mass facing the people was some sort of a, a primitive Christian practice is um, uh, basically nonsense. I remember being very struck by this. Um, when I was a, um, a seminarian, a modernist seminary in Milwaukee, having heard all of this nonsense about um, uh, the Mass facing the people, I came across uh, an article in... Uh, theology digest uh, in the seminary library that had just uh, come out this must have been in the late 60s or early 70s written by Monsignor Klaus Gomber uh, who was a somewhat conservative liturgist and he pointed these different things out he said it's a total fraud the idea of mass facing the people he said the first person to use the expression versus populum or, or the or conducting a service facing the people was Martin Luther Mm. So that's 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 your pedigree for that particular idea. 
Mm. But we never heard uh, anything about this. The the same old lie was repeated about uh, mass facing the people, and uh, scholarship uh, like. Um, Monsignor Gambrus was uh, ignored for 30 years until the 90s when people started to rediscover it. You know, something to think about, Father, you write about this in your book, um, that going back, you know, going back centuries, that, that there used to be a curtain drawn around the altar during the canon of the Mass. And then, you know, furthermore, between uh, the women and the men that were in the congregation. Now, you know, we talk about community. That's far from the notion of community. And, you know, I also might note that still to this day in the Eastern Bloc countries, men and women are segregated on the epistle and the gospel sides of the church. Yeah, I, th- I, I don't think that would uh, go over too well. I don't think it would either. restoration. You know, we, we, we propose putting a curtain around the altar in the Novus Ordo churches. And I don't know how Father Chuck could uh, communicate with the congregation, but then separate the men and the women. And, well, Father, well, Father uh, you know, he, he does wear a microphone. So, yeah, well, know, well he's, he does, okay. Yeah. But separating the men and the women, the only way you could pull that off is if, if the um, uh, liberal women's Soviet, which runs most of the Novus Ordo parishes these days, if they got the gospel side, which is the, the uh, more dignified side of the church, you, you'd ha- ha- have to give the girls that side. So, uh, but, uh, you know, you don't hear anything about... Uh, these types of restorations, you know, or that, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, say public uh, uh, public penances for adultery, uh, you know, the, the, those things they're not going to restore. But in we any move event, beyond that, Father, you know, we move. We, you know, we've gone beyond that, as they always right. say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, a little bit more, Father, about this fraud um, of the idea of, of returning to the primitive church. You write that uh, you know even Boyer and Youngman themselves knew that this was a total fraud, and and uh, you quote Youngman when he he was writing about the the nature of uh, the Oriental rites as saying that you know they had never tolerated mass space in the people, and, and this is an interesting quote from you know, from him. He says, "quote This is worthy of note." because these rites have generally preserved the primitive traditional practices of the church most faithfully. So, you know, they knew what they were doing. Well, yeah, the, um, both Jungmann and Bouillet knew what the history was. In fact, the, the cites to Father Brown's book uh, that I got came from Jungmann. And uh, the, this was, uh, you know, sort of a, a revelation that even he admitted it. And then Bouillet wrote a uh, book... Uh, after uh, the liturgical changes were were starting, uh, uh, complaining about this this false notion of of mass facing the people, uh, but um, uh, you know by that time uh, by that time of course it was everywhere and he was regarded as a bit of a crank and a complainer anyway, um, uh, even though he had a number of admirers, but these people knew that it was fraudulent. Uh, in any event, but uh, that didn't prevent the program from being sold as a return to uh, primitive practices. This next, this next little portion here, this is a this is a tidbit for our listeners who are the uh, uh, the reform of the reform mindset, if you will. It's interesting that one of the most prominent apologists for Versum Populum was Joseph Ratzinger. Could you talk about this, Father? The watchdog of uh, orthodoxy. Uh, well, he, he actually uh, he had a 
his his idea on that was that we should mix uh, a little bit of Protestantism and a little bit of the uh, uh, Eastern uh, uh, sense of uh, ad orientem and uh, toward the uh, uh, having mass uh, toward the East. So he went. Uh, the idea is that uh, he went back and forth on uh, these uh, two different ideas, and he he uh, tried to combine the Catholic ideas. Uh, features of the Catholic rite with notions from the, taken from the Protestant communion services. And uh, as we know, something like that really doesn't work. So, mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind our listeners that you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. And I am Justin Soder, your host, joined by Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and author of the book, Work of Human Hands. Today we've been talking about uh, the Masses, the Assembly, a little bit deeper than the last episode. Uh, we've, we've been diving into a lot of the reforms from Vatican II, the images conveyed, uh, the more of the deregulation, the corrosive deregulatory effects of Vatican II, giving power to the bishops' conferences, and so on and so forth. We'd like to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. We'd also like to thank our show sponsor, Roman Catholic Archive, for providing this show free of charge to our listeners. So, Father, moving on now, we're going we're gonna to switch over to the idea and the, the, the study of the new sanctuary. This is another part of your chapter here. And I would start off by saying that you know, perhaps nowhere is the empty vacuum uh, that is the Novus Ordo religion and its service realized better than by visiting a sanctuary, which really ranges from the veneer of tradition you know, that remains in it from the yesteryear of the old cathedrals of the world and you know, to the scandals and Freemasonic monstrosities that we you know, see in everything that the modern touch has been applied to. Um, it's incredibly important, as you point out in the book, to see the link between the new religion, its new mass, and the new sanctuary in which it's offered. They're all connected. So, Father, I, I thought you could start us off with a summary of why the new sanctuary provides the assembly with its man-centered worship compared to the Catholic sanctuary, which is Christocentric. Well, the Catholic um, sanctuary was centered on the altar and the tabernacle. And that's uh, something which, uh, that's a proposition that really doesn't need any proof. You look at any pre-Vatican II church, and that's exactly what you see. And and the reason it was so oriented is that uh, the whole rite was centered on uh, Almighty God, and it was considered a a vertical, an act of worship, uh, centered on Almighty God, and, and the priest and the people uh, faced in the same direction. The priest was leading the people, and s- still also not only leading them, but in the uh, place of an uh, intercessor and a mediator standing in persona Christi, the person of Christ. So all of those uh, those messages were uh, conveyed by how the sanctuary of the church was constructed. Everything was was centered on God. It was theocentric. In the liturgical reform, so-called, since everything now is based on the assembly, the orientation and the uh, uh, whole disposition of the sanctuary is changed. 
so instead of the centrality of the altar, you have three separate points. You have the uh, altar slash table. You have the uh, where the the liturgy of the Eucharist is celebrated. You have the uh, uh, pulpit. Uh, or the lectern, where the liturgy of the word is celebrated. And then you have something called the president's chair, where the uh, priest uh, presides over uh, the congregation. So, so instead of, of, of one, uh, one focus, one theocentric, God-centered focus, you have three different anthropocentric focuses that are all directed toward the congregation because the priest is his president's chair faces the people the lector faces the people and uh, for the liturgy of the Eucharist uh, from the presentation of the gifts onward the priest is standing at the, at the table also facing the people so it's, it's uh, uh, again uh, as we drill down in the different elements of uh, the new mass, we see this this man centered um, uh, man centered essence of it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit, Father, here uh, about there was a very interesting way in which uh, Pistoia actually described the way that these essential elements of the presider's chair uh, and the the lectern and the table or the altar should be arranged, and he said that it should be arranged in a quote triangular system unquote. Now I would say, I would say a note to all of our conspiracy theorists out there. Yeah, we connect the dots too. Okay, we get it. <laughs> Very good, Justin. I compliment you on your all-seeing eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, see now, now you're just giving it away, Father. <laughs> yes, that's right. Giving it away. Uh, it Interesting. Would be, huh? uh, <laughs> you would have uh, uh, the uh, some churches that were designed by your crazier architects would have uh, the table off to the side and the president's chair in the center. Uh, so uh, you you actually you had these uh, you didn't even have the table in the center, but all this was was uh, designed as it were to go along with the, the uh, theology of the new mass this this tripartite this tri- triangular system. So mm-hmm. that's very interesting. One more point here, Father, that, that I I wanted to cover because I know it bears mentioning was the abolition of the communion rail. Now, I remember when I first came to tradition years ago that it was when I finally walked into a church that had a communion rail, I could not put my finger on it. I just knew that it felt right. Um, There was really no, I mean, at that point in the game, I, I I wasn't developed enough to really be able to explain why it felt right or why it was right, but I just had this interior, and I know we don't chase after feelings, but it was just this presence that having the communion rail was correct. Why was why was its destruction and and taking it out of the church so devastating to the Catholic theology of the Mass and the belief in the real presence in the Blessed Sacrament? Again, it's it's the symbolism of it that uh, it was a, a symbol of uh, a separation, as it were, between heaven and earth. That the sanctuary symbolized heaven, the holy place, um, and the. Uh, uh, nave of the church symbolized the uh, symbolized the world, and so you had this this symbolic uh, separation. 
uh, to emphasize that the action that took place on the other side uh, of this rail was something that was uh, particularly holy and set apart from uh, the ordinary. So that that was the idea of the uh, of the communion rail, uh, very much so. We've uh, we alluded to this before that in uh, Eastern churches you have the iconostasis, which is actually a, a, a wall with icons on it that is opened only at certain points of the sacred liturgy. Again, the symbolism of the difference between heaven and earth. In the mm-hmm. West, this uh, idea was uh, uh, transposed into um, sanctuary st- screens, also called rood screens, R-O-O-D, rood standing, uh, being the old English word for the crucifix. And uh, these were uh, uh, ornamented, uh, ornamented gratings or sometimes even walls with decorations on them separating the uh, sanctuary of the church and the, uh, the monastic choir, let's say, of the church and the altar area from the nave. So you had that that uh, idea in the West. We even have a symbolic uh, root screen here at, at St. Kurt to the Great, in addition to a communion rail. So all of this, again, conveyed the idea that uh, there's a holy action that is going on. Well, Father, I, I want to give you a chance here to kind of do a, a small rapid-fire session here on the, the, the three essential elements and how they've changed. Um, we're, we're going to be discussing the altar with its altar stones and uh, uh, the lectern. It's actually a two out of the three. But let's talk a bit about how you know, we've seen this change over the years. Um, talk about the crazy designs of the altars and what the requirements used to be for the makeup of material of the altar, and I would tell our listeners that if if you want to get a picture, uh, like a good before and after before and after perspective, I think on Novus Ordo Watch has got a pretty good gallery of some of the crazy altars or tables and altars in the world that have come post Vatican II, and you can you can see a before and after, and it really really illustrates what we're about to talk about. So go ahead, Father, on that. Yeah, well, the design of the altar was. Um, exhaustively regulated by uh, all sorts of legislation in uh, the pre-Vatican II liturgy. It had to be a um, uh, it had to be something made out of stone, it had to be consecrated, you had to have crosses engraved in it, it had to be fixed in a certain way. Uh, it was almost always rectangular. Uh, so uh, there were all these, these different rules. After all of which were designed to um, emphasize the, the sacredness of um, uh, the altar itself, connected with the action that was going on uh, at the altar. Uh, after Vatican II, uh, this legislation basically was uh, thrown out. You started to see uh, altars and all sorts of uh, crazy and uh, odd designs, square altars, round altars, um, uh, altars done in a very abstract way. Um, one common thing in the 60s was, uh, or the 70s, was something of a butcher block uh, uh, type of altar. You'd have this, this big church and there'd be like a, a square blonde butcher block in the center of it, which would uh, serve as the uh, altar replacement. In uh, the Vatican, um, 
the altar of the uh, confession, which is in the far end of St. Peter's behind the uh, uh, high altar, was uh, redone. And there was an altar facing the people that was put in there, and it looked like a big uh, giant anvil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen that. Yeah. Modern anvil. So you had uh, there was this conscious idea to get away from the traditional uh, dimensions of uh, the altar. Uh, you had to have um, it had to be made out of stone, uh, stone, uh, some sort of stone. Um, the modern legislation allows you to use wood or, or synthetics for it. Um, the uh, in the old legislation had a um, uh, distinction between what was a fixed altar and a movable altar. A fixed altar was uh, one that was constructed in such a way that was uh, permanent. All of its supports were stone and went down to the ground and so on. And there was also uh, a type of altar called a movable altar that um, you... Uh, were supposed to use when you could not uh, construct such an elaborate stone altar, but this itself was a uh, was a piece of stone that was consecrated in a certain way that had relics in it, and um, this could be put in a larger wooden support if, if say, your uh, uh, structurally the church you had couldn't take a regular altar. But this was all. Uh, all regulated. Now the 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 the, um, the idea is you can make it out of any um, suitable material. Uh, the new legislation says, well, yes, the altar should be made out of stone, uh, but then the bishops' conference can approve any other sort of solid material that they think is becoming. So uh, what happened here is. Uh, um, with just a couple of words, the new legislation did away with with um, you know 1,600 years of tradition uh, by uh, in effect making the stone altar uh, optional. And uh, so, in in many modern churches, you simply don't have this. So mm-hmm. that, that's as far as the the main altar in the church. And then one of the other features. Um, in a uh, church that was constructed according to the traditional regulations with side altars. Uh, these were uh, constructed for priests to say private masses at or as um, uh, altars of devotion to different saints who were, uh, whose images were above the altars. Well, uh, uh, here in effect, uh, the, the practical order, this was uh, uh, abolished. Uh, there should be, uh, the legislation says normally only one altar in any church, and uh, that's that. But this went along with discouraging private masses and, and devotion to the saints in general, too. So uh, a whole, it's, it's like it's a different world. It's a different mm-hmm. world. And um, in the altar, Father, itself physically, there is an altar stone uh, which mm-hmm. you know, contains the relics of a martyr. Now, some of our some of our listeners may not be aware of that, or they may be you know coming to tradition for the first time and really 
seeing you know the the devastating changes so maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about you know the significance of the altar stone and why there are relics of martyrs inside the the altar stones first of all the symbol uh, symbolism of of stone is that um, is multiple uh, the uh, it uh, recalls um, our lord's body being in the sepulcher uh, as well it um, uh, uh, recalls the 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 image of of, of uh, Christ, who is is uh, the true cornerstone of uh, of our faith. So the you have this this the, there's this material of stone uh, and the symbolism that set into uh, the stone in a traditional altar is a um, are some relics of the saints that are, are uh, normally placed in a, uh, a small container, a small hole in the center of uh, the altar, and then uh, con- solemnly consecrated by the bishop, and then uh, the cemented in to the stone. Now, the symbolism of this and the uh, historical origins of this was the celebration in primitive Christian times of uh, Mass at the tombs of uh, the martyrs in the different Christian cemeteries. The martyrs would be um, uh, commemorated and, and, and prayed to on the anniversaries of their martyrdom, and the priest would say a Mass in effect on, on top of their tomb if he could, top of the martyr's tomb if they could. So there's an old um, tradition for this. Here, um, the new Mass deregulated um, uh, this particular practice, that uh, the diocesan bishops could, uh, the legislation said, decide the suitability of retaining this practice by considering the spiritual good of the community. Uh, you know, as usual, the lowest common denominator. So what happened, uh, practically speaking, is that they did not, uh, the the practice of uh, making an altar of stone, uh, constructing it out of stone, and then um, enshrining the relics of the the martyrs was was no longer, uh, was no longer followed. Mm-hmm. It's 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 another option, but again, it's considered that it's not really anything particularly important. I would uh, would tell our listeners that uh, if you ever have an opportunity to go see an altar consecrated, you know, correctly and traditionally done, you should definitely go see it. You should go go take a chance because you may not get to see it again in your lifetime. It's that rare, but it's it is something beautiful to witness. It is a very very elaborate ceremony. It is it is beautiful, um, and when you think about now that you know these these new tables are are just simply blessed and not even with the sign of the cross, as you say in your book, Father. It's just it's just incredible to think about that uh, and to think about really what's been lost. Um, Let's move on for just a second, Father, to uh, the lectern or uh, the ambo. Now, today we see a wide cast of characters which uh, stand behind this, um, and most of them nowadays are unfortunately women. And uh, talk about the significance of the role reversal that happened here, Father. So, well, what you have have here is that the role of the priest – uh, is substantially diminished in the new rite. And the idea was that 
to get participation of the laity in the congregation, you also have to have members of the laity functioning, uh, saying things and uh, different things in the sanctuary of the church. So the uh, pulpit, or, or, or rather the lectern of the ambo, then becomes the uh, sort of the turf, as it were, of uh, the uh, lay person who is um, uh, helping the priest with the liturgy. So this is the, the the priest sits passively over in his little uh, president's chair on the side, and other people do what he used to do, and they they generally do it over at the ambo. So you have the uh, you have maybe someone doing a commentary, you have a song leader, uh, a woman raising her hands when you're supposed to respond with the responsorial psalm. Uh, you have um, uh, different. Uh, men, laymen, or, or, or women uh, conduct, conducting functions at, at uh, the lectern while the, while the priest sits uh, uh, sits passively by. So it's it's, it's uh, another. It's uh, in the old days the lectern uh, simply has a, a practical function. Uh, it was where the the priest went to give a sermon. And uh, occasionally he would lead some prayers from it, but uh, that was it, the, the, the lectern or the pulpit. But now it's actually, um, uh, since we put everything in the Mass on the same level, since we put the um, uh, confection of the Eucharist, the liturgy of the Eucharist, on the same level as doing a scripture reading, uh, you have this, this uh, equivalent physical thing, uh, uh, for the altar uh, at which the word of God is read because uh, the new theology says that well Christ is also present in his word and in the assembly so uh, you have this other locus of interest well I'd like to remind our listeners you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network I am your host Justin Soder and this evening I am joined as always by Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio and author of the book Work of Human Hands We want to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org We'd like to thank our show sponsor Roman Catholic Archive for their generous sponsorship of this show, bringing it to our listeners free of charge. So, Father, moving into the last part of our conversation this evening, and this probably you know, the most offensive, is the, the, the part of this chapter which you've entitled The Vanishing Tabernacle. Now, you know, besides the Catholic religion, you know, the, uh, you know, the, most, <laughs> the most distinct and singular absence in a Novus Ordo sanctuary is that of the tabernacle. And nowhere in a Catholic church, I would say, uh, you know, is, is our faith supposed to be more prominent and tangibly visible than it is in the centerpiece of the high altar where our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament lives and resides, you know, waiting for us to come even pay him a visit in the tabernacle. Uh, it's, it's almost ubiquitous that if you walk into a Novus Ordo temple that you're going to play the game of find the tabernacle. And I, you know, I think I talked in an earlier show about going to St. Leo's Abbey here in Florida and, and finding the tabernacle off in a side room behind bars. That's, that's no joke. Uh, it was, you know, this is, this is where we are today. So, you know, gone are the days of being confronted with the awe and splendor of that gold tabernacle draped in the curtains of a color reflecting that of the liturgical calendar. Uh, and today you're going to find tabernacles everywhere except on the altar. So, Father, how did this happen? 
Well, it was something that was uh, uh, done very gradually by modern post-Vatican II legislation, uh, probably because the uh, idea of the importance of the tabernacle was so ingrained in uh, Catholic piety, pre-Vatican II Catholic piety. So the disappearance of the tabernacle, the way it, it, it disappeared, was uh, something that, that was rather slow and done in, in stages. You had a um, uh, this this idea of first of all of, uh, mass facing the people. Well, the priests, of course, naturally had to have his back then uh, to the tabernacle because uh, a uh, church after Vatican II uh, that was uh, adopting uh, adapting itself to the changes would uh, construct a, uh, a table so the mass could be said facing the people separate from the high altar so the priest would have his back to the um, to the tabernacle so you have have that and then the uh, legislation uh, church legislation uh, coming out of Vatican II allowed the bishops' conferences to decide a lot of these different issues. So you had, again, that element of, of this wild card, this element of uh, uh, deregulation. But in the uh, general post-Vatican II liturgical legislation, you find, first of all, uh, them saying that, well, the uh, tabernacle, they, they recommend that the tabernacle be placed in a chapel that's set aside from the main body of the church. So it's something that's um, recommended. Then uh, you get an instruction a little bit later saying that, well, uh, you should not reserve the Blessed Sacrament on the same altar where Mass is celebrated. So uh, that... Uh, uh, tells you that um, uh, you should not have the two things together. And then the uh, general instruction in 1969 uh, says that the Blessed Sacrament should be put in a private chapel suited to the devotion of the faithful. So this, this legislated it, that you have to have uh, a, 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 a tabernacle has to be in a, in a private chapel. Can so I pause you real quick, Father, there? Can I pause you real quick? Sure. Those, those, those 1967 instruction statements, that is, that is amazing. I mean, that really, when, when a Catholic stops to think about that, you know, the gravity of saying that the tabernacle should be separated from the altar and, and put in some side room or some side chapel, and there's a criticism of the reservation of the Blessed Sacrament, I think it really, I mean, if that does not display... The evil of the modernists. Uh, that is just a. Those are two standout parts of this chapter to me. Well, uh, you have to remember that, uh, of course, what you say is absolutely true. But their, their uh, idea is to uh, spurn the uh, idea of, of, of transubstantiation and the real substantial uh, presence of our Lord and Blessed Eucharist. And uh, this is one of the ways symbolically that they get across the new theological idea, that uh, this is something different 
from the mass, and it's it's fine. It's it's uh, private if you want to do it. Uh, our our buddy uh, Father Pistoia uh, said that uh, the reservation of blessed sacrament doesn't enter uh, on the high altar. Doesn't enter into what he called the dynamism of the mass. <laughs> so you, you you can see that it's a completely different theological world. Yeah, you know, it's he's a show. boldly going where no one has gone before since Martin Luther, I guess. So, um, but this is um, against, of course, what uh, Pius XII's teaching on this was. Now, this is another uh, bit of an interesting aside. His um, uh, discourse to the uh, liturgical movement in 1956 um, uh, scored a number of errors and criticized a number of errors which obviously he found in the teachings of the left wing of the liturgical movement. So in this 1956 speech there are, there are a lot of things that um, uh, he in effect condemns that will finally be approved by Vatican II. So he he said that um, uh, he quoted this anathema of the Council of Trent against the um, heretics who denied uh, that it was good to have devotion uh, to or adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, and he connected this particular idea, the idea of the the uh, heretics and and the teaching, their teaching that has been. Uh, condemned by Trent, with the uh, proposals to separate the uh, altar where masses said from uh, the tabernacle, and he said that, that uh, you, uh, by doing this, you're separating two things which are inseparable, and you can't do it, and it's wrong to do it. Mm-hmm. So this is a, it's an indication of uh, exactly what. Uh, uh, the fact that these errors were floating around at that point, and that he knew about them. But uh, yesterday's errors, uh, heresies, after Vatican II, became today's orthodoxies. <laughs> that should be on, that should be on your website somewhere, Father. That should be like a little <laughs> like a little motto, you know, a little a little quidlibet there. That's that's good. Um, Let's well, go on to the further one that won't get me into trouble. So. <laughs> well, we know we know you're on many trouble lists out there, Father. You know, yeah. the radioactive <laughs> Father Chicada. You know, um, let's uh, let's talk about more casualties of war here. Statues and images. Statuary got the axe too. What happened there, Father? Uh, well, I mean, they're not interested in the supernatural order. Your modern sorry. <laughs> yeah, bluntly said. Uh, I mean, you know, the basic. Um, uh, basic idea there. But apart from that, the idea of devotion to the saints was uh, something that was seen as old church, not really important. Uh, This idea of them interceding for us, the merits of the saints, and so on, um, as as our intercessors in heaven, that this is simply not... um, uh, This does not speak to modern man anymore. So... um, the important thing is is this theology of the assembly. And if you have a church full of statues and devotional altars to the saints, that distracts them from the primacy of the living assembly. Mm-hmm. So all of this has to go. And um, here, too, there was a um, 
progress, as it were, uh, in the um, uh, legislation of, of Vatican II, the post-Vatican II liturgical legislation, which uh, reduced the um, uh, to virtually nothing the importance of images of uh, the saints. You see that reflected in the new ritual books, the new liturgical books, for the uh, dedication of a church, for instance. So this is all part of the uh, this is all part of the package. So and, and very much um, uh, very much uh, a part of the reform, and very much in tune with the idea of, of the primacy of the living assemblies, uh, living assembly. One of the things that. Um, uh, one of the anecdotes that I mention in my book uh, was uh, this, that uh, as I was researching work of human hands, I uh, was going through very closely the magazine that uh, Bognini and the liturgical reformers had put together, um, the volumes of a uh, magazine called Notizie, which means news. And it was uh, put out to um, discuss the different details of the liturgical reform as they were being instituted. It was a dull magazine. It would be only of interest to, I guess, what you could call a liturgy geek um, for <laughs> the, the different details and trivia that, that contained and so it was awfully dull and it never had any pictures um, with with very few exceptions uh, one series of pictures it did have though was a church uh, the, before and after the application of the Vatican II uh, sanctuary rules what you were supposed to have in the sanctuary and the first picture had uh, this this church with a magnificent uh, altar in it and all these different statues, uh, magnificent statues uh, that were um, uh, in the niches above the altar. And this was the before picture. And the after picture showed the church with one of these little butcher block altars installed, all the statues gone, and a one of these resurrection Christ that sort of looks like Superman over uh, the altar, a small Superman. Mm-hmm. So I looked at that, and I looked at Bugnini, uh, who wrote the article, said that, well, you know, this is a, a really magnificent example of how the liturgical reform is, is implemented, and that the new sanctuary is so much more uh, robust and really reflects the liturgical reform. So I was contemplating this, and I thought, gosh, you know, those statues look awful familiar. Well, it turns out that it was <laughs> a before and after picture of, uh, Saint, I think, St. Stanislaus Church in Bay City, Michigan. Oh, and it turns wow. out that we at St. Gertrude the Great managed to get most of those statues. <laughs> and they are the ones that uh, are uh, in the sanctuary of our church now uh, adorning it. And uh, I find it so supremely ironic that of all people, uh, right. of all churches, <laughs> that um, the statues whose disappearance Bugnini praised ended up in the most anti-Bugnini church probably in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Saint Gertrude the Great. That is a great story. Yes, and then the statue, yes, the, the, the statuary is beautiful. And if, and if and if any of our listeners get a chance to visit Saint Gertrude's, you will not be disappointed in the statuary. <laughs> it is it is it is quite quite elaborate. That's uh, that's an amazing story. You know, one point I wanted to make, Father, too, is we talked about you know the corrosive effects of you know, the deregulation and giving the bishops' conference powers, and you know. What do we think the Bishops' Conference said when they were given the chance to comment about the direction that statuary and imagery should go in church, well, you know, how it should conform to the reform? Should it be that they should be present, they should be visible to the faithful? No, 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 no. No, they gave a quote that said, quote, In a period of church and liturgical renewal, the attempt to recover a solid grasp of church and faith and rights involves the rejection of certain embellishments, which have in the course of history become hindrances. In many areas of religious practice, this means a simplifying and refocusing on primary symbols. In building, this effort has resulted in more austere interiors, with fewer objects on the walls and in the corners, unquote. So there you have it, Father. Proof, proof in the pudding right there. Yes, this, this, is, presented as the, uh, this is presented as the ideal. And this was the uh, reality of the way that uh, churches were constructed after Vatican II, and for the most part still continue to be uh, constructed with the absence of, of uh, statues and, and uh, images of saints. Let's move on, Father, to sacred vessels and priestly vestments, because both of those tie in together. Could you talk a bit about how the the downgrading of the quality and the craftsmanship, I mean, frankly, the downright abolishment of certain sacred vessels worked and has worked uh, to destroy the faith in the real presence? Well, there was a, uh, a certain traditional form um, that uh, was followed in... Uh, constructing a chalice, which holds the precious blood at Mass, and a, a ciborium, which holds the, um, the consecrated hosts that are distributed to the faithful in, in uh, uh, Holy Communion. And these had a, had a certain standard form. There are many different styles, but uh, you could uh, look at something and you could tell it was a chalice or uh, it was a ciborium from its general shape and the fact that you had... Um, a, um, uh, you had gilding, um, uh, at least gilding on the inside of it, and, and it was many of them were quite ornate and ordained, or, uh, uh, ornamented with different religious symbols. So uh, uh, that was the the idea as far as the form, and then all of these were consecrated. There's a, a ceremony for uh, consecrating uh, chalices that had to be consecrated by a uh, bishop. So the idea is that it was something special because it held something special. It held these these vessels held the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, after Vatican II, the uh, idea was that well, since we have uh, turned the uh, mass now into an assembly supper and uh, a meal, that we should uh, change the forms of these different liturgical vessels as well. So you saw the the uh, construction uh, of uh, uh, a very very simple. Uh, chalices that simply look like cups, and uh, ciboria that look uh, uh, like flat plates. 
So the idea was everything was supposed to go along with the meal symbolism. Uh, so these items couldn't, wouldn't necessarily be recognized as uh, sacred objects. So this is a whole, if you look in, in the liturgical catalogs from the 1960s, you can see that this was uh, pervasive and all this was seen as, as being done in, um, uh, done consonant with the new legislation. Uh, in, uh, and in many, uh, in many cases you had um, all sorts of strange materials that uh, were, were used for these liturgical items. They, they were often unrecognizable. Father, just as a point for our listeners who may not be familiar with what a, a uh, you said the inside of the chalice at least had to be gilded. Could you explain what that means to our listeners if they're not familiar well, with that? that? There has to be uh, at least a layer a thin layer of gold uh, on the inside of the chalice, uh, uh, because that is uh, is uh, the part of the the vessel um, that holds the precious blood. So, since it's the okay. precious blood, we uh, put the most precious material uh, possible that, uh, that we have there. I mean, okay. so the the so, some of the Vatican II objects are just uh, that you saw are just plain bizarre. Um, when I was in the um, Modern Seminary in, in uh, Milwaukee in the late 60s and early 70s, um, we uh, had a um, uh, recreation room uh, where we could smoke. You, you, you would go in there and smoke and, and sit at the table, and everyone smoked in, in uh, uh, those uh, pre-enlightened days. And um, I, I was sitting at the table talking with the sacristan, uh, and uh, was distracted by someone else, and I went to uh, uh, put my uh, cigarette out in an ashtray while I was looking at someone else. Well, it turned out that he, he, he hollered, because what I had been doing is he was, he was on his way to the sacristy, and he had some of the vessels with him. And uh, one of these patents actually looked like an ashtray. Oh, and no. I wasn't paying attention, and I nearly put my Parliament 100 out in, uh, in this awful monstrosity. <laughs> so that would not happen with a traditional patent or support, I can assure you. <laughs> no, it would not. <laughs> Father Chicada is full of all kinds of of uh, old school stories here. This is good stuff tonight, Father. <laughs> this is good stuff. Um, let's uh, let's talk a bit about the uh, the changes in priestly vestments. And, and of course, I mean everyone has noticed this. This is not anything that is going to shock anyone if we talk about this. I mean, you know, if you've been to a traditional mass, particularly if you've been to a chapel or a parish that has been around for a while and they've had a chance to collect very nice vestments. I mean, you see the majesty and the elegance and the eloquence in the vestments themselves compared to going to a Novus Ordo and seeing these Novus Ordo presbyters wearing horse blankets and sackcloths and bed sheets and whatever it may be. Uh, Father, something that seems somewhat simple, but what does this really affect in the minds of the faithful? Or, or, excuse me. Excuse me, or the assembly. What does this affect in the minds of the assembly? <laughs> I see you had to reassemble your comment there. I did, uh, I did, I did. The, I wasn't with it. Uh, uh, idea uh, behind the change in the style was that uh, 
was to convey to the people that uh, the well, now the liturgy is completely different, is completely updated, as it were, is completely modern, follows modern styles, accommodates itself to modern society, doesn't have these these archaic um, uh, this archaic symbolism, these these stiff old vestments, uh, we're loose, we're freed up now, uh, we're beyond uh, the old theology and the old morality, uh, etc. So we have these these plain floppy vestments. The idea, um, this actually is, is is one of the ideas of Vatican II that uh, condemns the idea. Uh, in effect of uh, vestments being elaborately ornamented. So uh, uh, that's something that, that you find in the documents of Vatican II. That's why the whole idea of reviving um, uh, pre-Vatican II liturgical uh, paraphernalia, liturgical frou-frou, um, is um, uh, so ridiculous because it is against Vatican II. The idea that you would have a stiff Roman chasuble with all sorts of gold work and ornamentation is completely against the, the council. So they got these, these uh, floppy, plain um, uh, vestments um, to replace the uh, old vestments. And uh, this was to convey the idea very clearly that uh, we have, it's, that liturgically speaking, it's uh, a different world. Uh, I uh, point out in, in passing one of the uh, differences between uh, Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, and, and Bergoglio is that while Ratzinger got out a lot of the old um, stuff from the sacristy, a lot of the old traditional miters and uh, traditional crosses, um, uh, very orna um, heavily ornamented or old chasubles that were heavily ornamented. Um, it, Bergoglio rejected all that stuff uh, right away. He uh, had all of the Paul VI stuff brought out, uh, the simple, uh, very plain, floppy vestments, uh, the uh, very plain miters. The, uh, he got out the old Paul VI uh, uh, abstract um, metal crucifix, the, the one that I call the Twisted Lizard Crucifix, and uh, it, it decided, to, decided to use that instead. And uh, so Bergoglio, uh, you know, say, uh, sending a message by using that stuff, by saying that we're all uh, updated now, uh, that we're not going to be concerned about these past traditions uh, and so on. We're, we're beyond that all now. So that, that's, uh, that's the idea. So you see that in, in, in investments. You, um, the Ottaviani intervention points out uh, that uh, by uh, abolishing so many of the, uh, or a number of the uh, traditional vestments, that the, the priest ends up looking a little bit more like someone who's, who's uh, graduating from school rather than a, a priest arrayed in, in all of his vestments. Because strictly speaking now, the only um, required vestments are the stole, the elb, and the chasuble. Uh, before the, the amice, the cincture, and the maniple, uh, which 
had a, a symbolic weight as well were all, all uh, part of this, part of the priestly vesture. So uh, those things that were symbolic were abolished, and only the things that the people could see actually are still required. Even there, the um, Vatican legislation uh, allowed the priest to uh, wear uh, a liturgical concoction that was called a chasuble alb, which was a com uh, combination of uh, alb and uh, uh, floppy chasuble. So you didn't even have to put an alb on, which is the long white uh, robe that the priest would wear. You just throw this uh, um, uh, one item on uh, over your um, cut off jeans and, and uh, you know you're ready to cruise into the sanctuary so uh, so but the idea uh, it was that uh, the symbolism is no longer important mm -hmm. uh, because we're in a different it's a different theology that is um, um, in the driver's seat in the new liturgy well, I think this ties in well with how we opened our show, talking about how we saw a lot of these you know, retro externals back during that uh, period of hope and change called the Reform of the Reform from 05 to 2013 under Benedict. Um, and I hope our listeners now see why, the, you know, no matter what they drag out and put up, the ornate altars, the broke candlesticks, any neo-Gothic statuary, those, those sort of things, I mean, to... To take a phrase from Bishop Sanborn, it really is throwing snow on top of a dung heap. You know, it's it's um, you know it, it it just doesn't work. And uh, so I think the best way to wrap this this show up here this evening or this this episode up this evening, Father, is uh, to let you talk about what you write in your book about the motives of the changes uh, are to number one to accommodate ecumenism and modernism, and number two the statues and imagery do not bear witness to the modernist theology of the assembly. And I would like to hear your thoughts on that and go ahead and give us a quick summary. Yeah, the... Uh, so, uh, you... If you look at these things individually, you say, okay, well, you know, that's, it's a question of details and you're um, hung up on tiny externals. That was one of the uh, comebacks all the time that um, modernist clergy had for you in the 60s if you complained about this, that, or the other thing. But what happens is that the aggregate effect of changing all of these externals uh, conveys a, a theological message. And the theological message is that the theology of the Mass has now changed. It has changed to uh, accommodate uh, ecumenism, uh, that is to say, the, uh, to make elements of uh, the Catholic liturgy acceptable to non-Catholics to do away with the, the, the frou-frou, as it were, of it. And secondly, to accommodate the modernist theology of uh, the Mass, which is a Mass as uh, assembly, that the old things, the old world of uh, liturgy and theology has now passed away. We have evolved into something else. And the liturgical symbolism, uh, the, the symbolism of the externals of the sacred liturgy, be it the general disposition of the Church, 
which should now reflect the primacy of the living assembly, be it the direction where uh, the priest faces for most of the Mass, be it what goes to make up the altar, uh, be it where the tabernacle is, is, is located or not located, be it what the vessels are used or what the priest wears, that uh, all of these uh, symbols uh, send now a different theological message, which is that the old theology is gone, the new theology of the Mass uh, as assembly has, uh, uh, has arrived, and everything must uh, reflect it that um, as uh, was actually said in a, 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 a commentary in a booklet uh, uh, put out by a church in, in Cincinnati that underwent one of these radical um, uh, simplifications and, and guttings and, and strippings and renovations is that now the people are the real decoration in the church. And that about sums it up, I think. Mm-hmm. Indeed it does. Indeed it does. Well, Father, thank you so much for your time this evening. This uh, this particular chapter, I think, is is another one of those nuts and bolts chapters that, you know, well, I mean, the whole book is nuts and bolts, but I think this is uh, a chapter that uh, a lot of our listeners who have walked the journey to tradition all experienced, and uh, you've, you've really laid out. And, and just to remind our listeners, we've just covered really the heavy, you know, the heavy lifting parts of the chapter, but there's, there's so much excellent, excellent material in this chapter, particularly the part about priestly vestiture where Father gives the prayers the the priest says as he vests for mass and and it's 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 really beautiful and if you haven't picked up the book it's very it's it's definitely worth a read if you're a liturgical geek this will definitely this will definitely tickle your liturgical funny bones uh, so father tell us what's happening over at SGG resources since we last talked in June all right well the we have um, uh, we could say expanded our, our broadcast page a little bit. We have a much better broadcast page and uh, m- much better um, uh, visibility of everything that goes on in the sanctuary of the church. It's a very important part of uh, of our apostolate, uh, the fact that we're able to bring the uh, traditional liturgy through the, the web to different parts of the world to Catholics who don't have uh, access to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. In connection with that, we're running various, we run uh, various novenas and um, uh, uh, devotions. We're running one of, of uh, Marian feasts, September Marian feasts. We invite your intentions for that, and you can submit those through uh, the site as well. Uh, the site you can use to order a copy of Work of Human Hands uh, to purchase a, a different uh, DVDs uh, that we have, and, and generally to support uh, our work, which uh, of course we uh, encourage. And uh, in connection with that, we urge you to tell your friends about it. So that's uh, the story on sggresources.org. Uh, and the Father is always taking donations made payable to Father Anthony Chicada with uh, as many zeros as possible at the end of the check <laughs> before before the decimal point. So before well, the decimal point. If you want a tax deduction, though, it's better to make it 
to St. Gertrude the Great Church. So uh, if Bill Gates is listening, uh, we still have a plan for uh, building a bigger church here, and I particularly would like a nice rood screen uh, for this one to separate the sanctuary from the nave, and of course, a giant pipe organ. So, uh, Bill, we're leaving it up to you, and we even take PayPal and American Express. <laughs> well, Father, thanks so much for your time this evening. I appreciate all that you've given to us and you know, to our listeners, and thank you for all that you do. God bless you. God bless you. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be helpful, informative, or in any way beneficial to you and to your Catholic faith, that you would please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Or remember that above and beyond the material contributions, the most important donation that you can make here to our work is prayer. So please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Justin Soder, and may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.